The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. You? Doing well, Father. Good. Good to see you. Yeah, you too, Father. Great to be back. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, so you can see, Father. Uh, but I would like to uh, begin with some viewer emails, if we could, before we move on to some uh, current mm -hmm. events. Um, and first, I just wanted to read a, a very nice, very nice email that we received from a viewer who said, uh, Dear friends, I would like to thank Father William Jenkins, Mr. Nagley, and all the good people who make the What Catholics Believe show possible. I always watch the live broadcast on Tuesday evenings. I'm in the process of working my way through the 64 pages of archived programs available on your website. This archive is a treasure trove of solid Catholic teaching, which you can't find elsewhere. I'm constantly astounded by the depth of learning that Father Jenkins has on so many subjects. I am a recent refugee from the heretical Novus Ordo. The conveners of Vatican II who foisted this abomination on us counted on the loyalty of our Catholic people, such as myself. I stuck with the institutional church for decades out of sheer loyalty, becoming more and more outraged each succeeding year. After several years of quote-unquote Pope Francis and his abominations, I finally had all that I could take, I have now cut my ties at long last, something I should have done back in the 1960s. I very much appreciate the live and archived traditional Latin masses available on the WCBOhio.com website. Since I live in an area where there is simply no other option available, I have to rely upon these broadcasts for attending Holy Mass. Uh, he says, being older and in poor health, moving out of state to be close to an SSPV church is also not an option. However, at least I can attend the Mass remotely. So thank you again for all that you do. He says, I will be making contributions to support this good effort. A very kind email. Father, very I just kind. Wanted, wanted Much appreciated. Yeah. God bless him. It's, it's a very charitable soul, mm -hmm. certainly. Yes, absolutely. Thank him for, uh, for watching and working his way through all of the older programs as well. So very grateful for that. Uh, so a question, Father, from another viewer. She wrote in and said, I would like to come back to the Catholic Church. The problem is my state of Michigan has a church in my town but has Mass only once a month. There is a church three hours away, further north, and in the winter it would be very tough. So what do you suggest in this situation? Should we attend Mass online? She says, I was baptized in the traditional Catholic Church and possibly received the sacrament of penance but all else was in the modernist church. So can I go to confession in the Catholic church? And by which I understand her to mean the Novus Possibly. Churches. So, well, in the first place, I'd like to know where this dear person lives. Um, perhaps there is a traditional, a true traditional mass closer to him or her. Is it a lady? Or yes, Father. Yes. Okay, great. Um, and, um, you know, if, if we can help find a traditional Mass more regularly, uh, it is offered regularly and nearer to you, we'd be very happy to do so. 
in the meantime, I do recommend that you at least assist uh, remotely as, as long as you can. We make the Mass available by live streaming each and every day, and uh, uh, sometimes more than once a day, in fact. So um, it's possible to do that and to make spiritual Holy Communions very important as a source of grace. But uh, as I say, if we knew exactly where you were, we could try to find a traditional Mass nearer to you. Uh, but also, uh, the question of whether you could go to the Confession in the in the New Order Church, well, he, in the first place, you'd have to find a priest who was validly ordained, that is, before the new rite of ordination came out, which is very dubious. Um, you'd have to find a priest who was ordained well, quite some time ago. He'd be up in years now. But they, they do exist. And uh, even if the priest were validly ordained, you'd have to be sure that he still has the faith. It is a fact that some of the earliest uh, priests after Vatican II were among the most radical of all. <clears throat> and um, so just because a priest was ordained, let's say, in 1967, uh, before the new rite of ordination came out, uh, doesn't mean that he is a Catholic and not a modernist. So you'd have to be sure that he really is a Catholic and still has... Uh, uh, most, of, most of those priests who are... Um, up in years, and our Orthodox, as it were, still have the faith, have a reputation for being very rigid. Uh, they're rather well-known in, in dioceses. Most of them at, at that age would be retired right now, probably in a nursing home somewhere. So if one were to, um, you know, check the, the local nursing homes and see if there is a, a clergyman there who's up in years, um, in his 80s or or, or even older, uh, it would be a, actually a work of mercy to go and visit. Um, even to go and offer to pray the rosary with him and uh, try to inspire in him, you know, a love for the old faith. For, for all we know, he's been marginalized and abandoned by the diocese. Uh, so it might be very encouraging to him to know that you and others still have the true, the true faith, the traditional faith. And uh, you might be pleasantly surprised uh, at the reception you get from an old abandoned priest who might have been uh, parked in a nursing home precisely because he has the old faith. Um, you know, there are priests who were essentially um, put on ice after Vatican II uh, because they insisted on having the traditional faith and clinging to the traditional Mass. So... Uh, well, that's, perhaps you might, you might even be able to find one of them and uh, be a support to him. Anyway, it's worth a try. Right? God will bless your efforts for that. In which case, if you did find a, a priest who was ordained validly before Vatican II and uh, before the, the new rite of ordination came out in 1968, and um, he has the faith and would be willing to give you absolution, traditional Catholic absolution for sins, then you could... Go to go to him for confession. Receive absolution from that priest. Um, uh, another reason why it'd be helpful for us to know where you are is because sometimes in our travels we come to areas where we don't necessarily frequent to annoy someone who's dying or for some special reason. And uh, if we knew where you were, then we'd certainly let you know. If uh, 
were able to, uh, you know, be accessible to, to mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you for that, Father. Um, another email then. Uh, viewer says, dear friends, I have grudgingly put up with a dysfunctional and heretical Novus Ordo Church all my life because I have been afraid to leave. After doing a massive amount of research over the years, however, I have finally concluded that leaving it is good. Leaving it for good is both justified and necessary for me. Mm -hmm. But here's my problem. In my area, there is simply no alternative to the church. Uh, the nearest acceptable alternative is far too long a distance to travel. I have therefore decided to do the only thing I can think of, attend the traditional Latin Mass using my home computer each Sunday. Since Holy Communion is impossible for me to obtain, I will have to rely on spiritual communion exclusively. Since confession is impossible for me to obtain, I will have to rely on perfect contrition for my sins exclusively. However, this worries me since no one can be absolutely certain that they have perfect contrition. These are my plans, but Father, I welcome your advice on this critical matter. Well, uh, another another heart-wrenching heart case of a poor Catholic being isolated like that. Uh, and uh, I would say the same thing, though. Let us know where you are, and if we can possibly be available and accessible to you, we'll, we'll make every effort to do so. So that at least you get to confession uh, periodically. And possibly even be able to receive our Lord uh, in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, uh, somehow, you know, our purpose is to be here to make the traditional sacraments available to the faithful. And so we do everything we can to make that, to, to accomplish that. But, uh, you know, the plan you have right now, and that is following the Mass, the traditional Mass, by, by live streaming, by following the Mass online and uniting yourself with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, with the Sacrifice of Calvary. Spiritually, over the distance, uh, that is a very holy thing to do. And um, also to make spiritual communions and try, you know, there's something rather noble about an individual like that, I think, a man with a cat or a lady, I think it's a gentleman. I don't know. Sure. I think so. Probably. A gentleman with a, a faith that says, I'm going to try to um, rely on perfect contrition for my sins because th what that person is actually saying is, I'm going to try to live a perfect love for God. I'm going to ask God for the grace of perfect contrition, which derives from perfect love for God. What our Lord talks about in the first great commandment, to love God with one's whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that is exactly what we all should be doing everywhere. Um, those of us who have immediate access to the traditional Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, ready access to the Blessed Sacrament, I mean, that's the ideal which we all should be pursuing. Uh, it's not just the ideal, it is exactly what is necessary for us to fulfill the first great commandment, and, by the way, consequentially, the second great commandment, uh, and clear the way to heaven. So if this uh, dear Catholic gentleman is striving to do that, uh, and he wants to have a perfect love for God, you can be sure that our Lord is very pleased with that and will provide very powerful graces for him. So um, uh, that doesn't mean that we you know, won't make, wouldn't make every effort to find a way for him to receive the sacraments periodically. But uh, I'm sure that Almighty God will support him in his good intentions, too, mm -hmm. by grace. So God bless you for it. We need to keep you in our prayers and ask you to 
pray for us too. Absolutely. Okay, then moving on. The viewer says, Father, I work in a chiropractor's office as the office manager. Is it all right for me to work there on holy days as long as I make the day holy otherwise but going to Mass? Well, I don't know what you do in the chiropractor's office. Uh, I know chiropractory can be uh, a very physical exercise and, uh, uh, you know, adjusting people and so on. And uh, But what we're talking here is not so much... Uh, medicine that is forbidden on uh, holy days and Sundays. It is actually um, it is actually uh, servile work. <clears throat> and insofar as you were trying to heal people, uh, that would not categorically be considered servile work. <clears throat> you know, our Lord Himself healed the poor woman with the flow of blood, healed the man with the withered limb on the Sabbath day. And when the Pharisees muttered, complaining that our Lord was violating the Sabbath, he expressed his, well, he, he told them exactly uh, what Almighty God had to say about this, God's judgment on this matter. And uh, here you have the Son of God performing miracles, of healing, that is to heal those who are ill and, and severely injured on the Sabbath day. And our Lord even talks to the Pharisees and says, look, you, if you have an ox or an ass fall into a pit on, on the Sabbath day, you organize the crew to get together, you know, imagine the task in getting an ox out of a pit and to, to rescue your ox. And here you have one of your own kinsmen here who's been suffering all these years with this debility and you begrudge them that they would be cured of that on, on the Sabbath day. He showed their hypocrisy. So our Lord himself was telling us how not, not to disregard the Sabbath. Uh, well, what we now know is the Lord's Day, of course. Uh, it's not Saturday anymore, it's Sunday. Um, but that's the day consecrated to God. And, uh, and the holy days of obligation, like Sundays, are consecrated to God, and we must abstain from servile work. And our Lord was not in any way impugning that or denying that. But he was saying that God sees that as um, something that has to yield to the law of charity, too, when we can be of service to others who are desperately in need. Um, then uh, this, is our, this is Almighty God's way of telling us what our priority should be. So, uh, anyway, um, no, in answer to her question, she should not be concerned about, uh, you know, the, that type of work involving a violation of the, uh, of the Sunday rest or the Holy Day rest. But um, I, would, I would still advise her uh, to see if there's a way to find a substitute or arrange schedule so that she doesn't have to, I presume it's a lady, mm -hmm. uh, that she has, is able to go to the, uh, uh, take care of this, the, uh, the holy day without distraction of going into work, even at a chiropractor's office. Right. Okay. <clears throat> All right. That's great then, Father. But I, I would say, though, that she doesn't have a moral obligation uh, under certainly grave sin to, to rearrange the schedule. I think that would still be advisable to do so. Okay. Uh, can Father address the practice of making a general confession? I have heard of it, but I have never had it explained how to do it. 
Well, I, I think there are uh, various pamphlets uh, on the subject that are actually really helpful. But I must, having said that, I must say I haven't seen one in a long time. <laughs> so uh, it might be a good idea to draw up one. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd ask uh, Father Martin Skierke to see if he has a, uh, a text on that very subject, because Father Skierke has quite a, uh, quite a library of texts uh, from priests and bishops from before Vatican II that really give the Catholic Church's traditional teaching. He publishes them, uh, republishes them sometimes, and I wouldn't be surprised, but they had a nice write-up on a, uh, a general confession. But a general confession is really meant to cover large periods of one's life. Uh, a true general confession begins uh, looking at one's conscience from the time that person reached the age of reason to determine what the person can remember. And um, the understanding is that the bulk of the sins of a general confession have already been confessed. In fact, the person in making a general confession has to be able to say, okay, these sins have already been confessed. Um, and um, they can start with this. They, they could actually start going by saying, Father, this is a general confession. And they should actually prearrange that with the priest, because if he has a line of 20, 30, 40 people waiting for confession, well, the general confession generally will take a bit longer. And the priests, a priest may have limited time available, so he wants to make sure everybody, not, not, that not only that everyone can get to go to confession, be absolved, but he wants to make sure the person making the general confession has time to do so worthily, too. So I think it's really essential to let the priest know in advance that this is your plan and make arrangements um, to have the time necessary for a worthy general confession. And when the person goes into the confessional, um, they should say, Father, I'm, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I'm, uh, it has been so long since my last worthy confession, and I'm here to make a general confession. And the priest might expect that person to say, well, Tell me first the sins since your last confession. In other words, the priest focuses on initially what sins have not yet been confessed. So if it's been two months since the person has been to confession, then uh, the priest might want those sins confessed. Since my last confession, these are the sins I've committed. And then from my past life. Okay. Uh, now, there are priests who might say, well, let's start from the beginning, and then we'll end with the sin since your last confession, as long as, as it all uh, is brought up. You know, that really doesn't matter what order it goes in. I think generally they uh, uh, want you to confess the sins since the last confession first, so you know that those are taken care of and duly confessed. Um, but then uh, the sins from the last confession, uh, rather, I should say, the sins of one's past life, they recommend that one make an examination of conscience, of course, um, but in this case, um, kind of dividing one's life up into periods of time. For example, from the time one is seven years old, roughly when they reach the age of reason, to the time they maybe get to be 14, 15 years old, Perhaps they recognized there were certain tendencies they had during that time which uh, made them uh, obstreperous, right? uh, difficult for their parents, bad example for the other children, 
sins that they can remember from that time that uh, uh, that they still remember because well they now even take them more seriously now than they did then right so um, <clears throat> you know a child uh, they might remember from childhood well I was very lazy in my in my work I was very negligent and um, being helpful around the house, I was very nasty to my brothers and sisters, I was disrespectful to my parents. Uh, they might remember things like that that stand out. Now, what they don't want to do is go back and try to confess every single sin they committed since the time they were seven years old. That's not a general confession. To confess, to confess specifically individual sins one by one by one. Um, unless they have particular sins of the past that they fear might not have been confessed or might not have been confessed properly. Well, then in those cases, yes, those are, they should be focused on. But generally speaking, they're looking for a, a kind of a predominant fault in each part of their lives. Somebody might then say, well, when I was a teenager, I turned 13 and I, between the ages of, let's say, my, let's take my high school years. From the time I was in elementary school, you could take that as kind of the dividing line. The time I went to high school, these are the kinds of sins that predominated in my life. If a person says, okay, I was given to this particular sin during my high school years. Um, I was, you know, given to sins of impurity, whatever they may be. I was, um, I mean, sins have names. You just give them a name. You don't describe anything. You just say, give them the name in, in the, moral, uh, the moral law that they have, right? And um, and one might say also, and uh, also I used bad language, right? I took the name of God in vain, used four-letter words, whatever it was, and did so in the presence of others, so I gave a lot of scandal to others by the way I spoke. Uh, I spoke disrespectfully about my parents, uh, about other people's parents. If they had the tendency to do that, they, that's something that they could mention. And thus giving scandal to my friends, my, my siblings, and so on. So uh, maybe vandalism, theft, you know, whatever they, they say, this characterized, kind of haunted my high school years. Then I'd say I went off and, uh, to college, and during my college years, these are the sins that predominated at that time. Now we're notice we're talking primarily, we're trying to zero in on the more serious sins. Um, so, you know, for, for someone to go to... Uh, Make a general confession and say, well, I, I had a, you know, a tendency during these years to, um, uh, I don't know, uh, commit a venial sin, uh, whatever it might be, uh, being inattentive in my prayers during this time. And that's, that's not willful, usually. And um, if they were sacrilegiously or blasphemously, so, I mean, willfully inattentive when they attended Mass or something like that. Yes, they, they might want to confess that. But ordinarily, to say, yes, when I was in high school, I prayed the rosary every day, but my mind tended to wander. Well, that's not necessarily, again, uh, something that would be the focus of a general confession, because you're looking for things that are actually, you know, very more sinful, uh, more gra graver sins, let's put it that way. And in the college years, again, one would focus on those. And 
And, and during this time, by the way, by, while one is confessing the sins by name that they committed during these various periods of their lives, they would generally try to give a, uh, a number of sins as well as they could. And it will often come down to not, ex- you know, 1,813 times I did this, but a matter of saying, uh, on the average, probably about twice a week. Well, I was in college, this is, I drank too much, got drunk, or, and gave, gave scandal to, you know, uh, my friends, maybe three or four of my friends. Um, <clears throat> so they try to assign a number, which is not an exact number, but gives a pretty good idea about the, the prevalence of the sin in their lives. And um, again, uh, during this time, they might be, there might be a certain certain sins that they especially regret because they consider these to be particularly damaging to their souls or the souls of others. And they can highlight those. <clears throat> and then, you know, getting a first job, obviously getting married, uh, during my courtship, right? That's a period of time one can focus on. But um, proceeding in that way with examination of conscience, kind of looking at the various um, periods of one's life, uh, divided by significant events is a good way to gain one's focus and to recall sins that were associated with certain activities and certain conditions in their lives. And then they would follow that up to date. And, uh, you know, at the end, of course, they would always conclude by saying, uh, well, they have to convey to the priest, I am sorry for all my sins. Um, saying, this is all I can remember, Father, is one thing, but to say, I am, I'm heartily sorry for all my sins is a statement that I'm sorry, which is essential, and uh, that I am concluding what I have to say. Now, if there is a general confession that went on for, you know, for, let's say a person has been away from confession for 20, 30 years, not unusual these days, <clears throat> the priest might well say, well, you know, God bless you for that. I'm sure it uh, was difficult for you to do that, but you were motivated by a love for God and a genuine sorrow, sorrow for sin. And uh, our Lord's concern and my concern and your concern is that when you leave the confessional here, you know you've made an, a good, full good con- confession. And I, I know that when you leave here, you might well remember things that you don't recall right now. That's normal, okay? Don't panic about that. Don't be upset about it because... As long as you can say, in all truthfulness, I'm heartily sorry for all my sins. Um, And you have true contrition in the sense that your sorrow is motivated by a love for God. Perhaps not uniquely, perhaps not perfect love for God, but there's genuine love for God, which moves you to repent of your sins. Then your sins are forgiven. You know, you tell someone like that. Even if you remember something, uh, the moment you walk out of the confessional, or a week later, or, you know, a month or a year later, uh, don't doubt the fact that if you have true contrition for your sin, even imperfect contrition, but it's contrition, that your sins are forgiven right now, because you made a complete universal confession as well as you can. If you remember unconfessed mortal sins, then confess them for the integrity of the confession later on, when you remember them. But thank God for reminding you, because it is really a grace from God to see these things, and this is God's way of making it clear to you that he intends to save your soul. And he will give you whatever information you need to enable you to clear the way to heaven. So uh, don't be upset about it. Be, be grateful for it. 
It's uh, an act of God's mercy to remember something later that you need to confess. However, um, I, I would also tell the person, look, you know, you've tried to remember as well as you could all this time. Well, maybe it would be worthwhile if we went through an, uh, the uh, examination of conscience together. I can read through the commandments for you and just list the various things that are elements of these various commandments and see if that would be helpful. And, you know, somebody could say, well, Father, that would be helpful. And so, you know, in a very short time, in a very, very brief time, we can cover a lot of ground. And I just tell them, well, if, the, if it was no, no. If it's yes, yes. And if so, how many times and whatever circumstances might, you know, add to the, uh, affect the, the gravity of the sin. And uh, if the priest is asking the questions and the person just has to respond to them, um, you can really cover a lot of ground in a very short time. And most people, you know, I, I would say are, are grateful for the help, would be grateful for the help. Uh, so anyway, the, the point is that you're going to receive absolution at the end for all of these. Is it, is it helpful? Well, whenever you're going to make a major change in your life, getting married, right, enter the seminary, being ordained uh, to anything, um, uh, leaving home, going to college, and so on. I mean, it's a very, very good idea to make a general confession. Um, when, when you're going to receive a sacrament that uh, you want to receive with the fullness of the grace that is offered, you want to clear the obstacles out of the way uh, before being confirmed, for example, it's an excellent practice to go and make a general confession for that. As I say, getting married is, is important. Uh, it's important to clear the obstacles out of the way of God's grace. Um, but, you know, the, um, the uh, main, main thing is uh, to uh, clear, clear all these obstacles out of the mind, out of the soul, out of the conscience. If one is scrupulous, if a conscience is scrupulous, they have to be careful. Because if they start examining their conscience too minutely, they can wind up like in the quicksand. Okay? So the priest, uh, if he's asked to hear a general confession, uh, and he knows the person is a very scrupulous person, he's got to handle it a different way. Uh, he's got to warn them not to get lost in their thoughts and uh, overwhelmed by a sense of guilt <laughs> or anything like that. But that's another matter uh, that I won't necessarily go into here, but just a little caveat there. Mm -hmm. That's great, Father. Thank you. That's very practical and helpful. Father, what, uh, what advice, what encouragement would you offer to someone who uh, is, uh, say, very daunted at this task of making a general confession and kind of worried about the enormity of, of their sins and therefore find it very frightening mm -hmm. to go make that discussion? Well, I'd recommend to anybody who's preparing to make a, a general confession that they make a novena, that they make a novena to the Holy Ghost. Um, and they ask for the enlightenment of the Holy Ghost, who knows their souls, who sees their souls perfectly, of course. And uh, to ask for the enlightenment uh, of God so that they can see clearly not only their sins, but also simultaneously to see more clearly the love of God for them. 
and to appreciate the love of God for them. Um, without that, I mean, if, if God were to show us our souls as they are right now, um, we might be crushed by the, the, the sight of our, of our sins and our faults and how far we are from loving God with all of our hearts and mind and soul and strength. Um, but God would not allow us to see that without also providing the grace necessary to rely on him and his goodness and his love for us, to have more confidence in him. And so that's what we need to pray for. So anyone who's under, undertaking the, for some very daunting task of making a general confession, they, gen they certainly have to approach it prayerfully. And um, you know, they might you know, not, not only want to make an act, uh, let's say a litany to the Holy Ghost, but the litany of our Blessed Lady, the litany of St. Joseph. Uh, again, the litany to the Holy Name of Jesus, which is full of hope, full of hope and uh, trust in, in the, the love of God, the love of our Lord for us. Uh, these prayers are essential in order to prepare oneself to make a good general confession. Mm -hmm. One could undertake fasting, too. Here we're in Lent, but outside of Lent, one could undertake fasting to prepare for that. But uh, someone who is uh, given to scrupulosity would have to be warned. <laughs> in fact, I mean, what I would tell somebody I, whom I knew was scrupulous, I'd say, okay, you want to make a general confession, I might even tell them it's not a good idea. For you and your condition right now, this is not a good idea. This is asking for trouble, um, not because of, you know, anything that God is doing, <laughs> but because um, it's sort of like performing major surgery on somebody when their heart can't take it, <laughs> you know, when their heart is weak. You just don't do that. Um, but also, I would, I would tell a person who is scrupulous, that uh, I, I don't want them to examine their conscience. Uh, I would suggest that, I, I would think I would tend to do this, be prone to do this. Uh, I will just go through the commandments with you as an, um, by examining your conscience with you. Uh, because I don't want you obsessing. Okay? And I just want you answering yes or no. And if, I, if there are any questions to be answered, I will ask them. Okay. And you must not uh, go into detail. Okay. And uh, for you, that's about as much as uh, I personally would be able to recommend right now. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, a scrupulous conscience is a special case. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that, Father. Yes, for your insight there. there are those who could give a much better explanation than I, but make an, make an effort at it. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, okay. Another email, Father. I could. Um, this viewer asked if you could explain the difference a little bit between implicit and explicit heresy, because he says from watching some of our previous videos, it seems that um, you, Father, are of the opinion that uh, some of the heresies contained in the Second Vatican Council are implicit rather than explicit. Um, and he cites uh, as one example the uh, document Lumen Gentium, paragraph 16, the sentence says, on account of their fathers, this people remains most dear to God, for God does not repent of the gifts he makes, nor of the calls he issues. But the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place amongst these are the Muslims, 
who professing to hold the faith of Abraham along with us adore the one and merciful God who on the last day will judge mankind. So Father, is this not explicit heresy saying, uh, referencing the Muslims and saying that they believe in the same God that we do, have the faith of Abraham? Well, um, I think this uh, person is responding to something that was said in an earlier uh, program about Archbishop of Heaven. When I asked him about Dignitati Sumani Persone, um, that's the document on religious liberty, the last of the dogmatic constitutions, I guess they call that. Uh, I think that's one of what they call the dogmatic constitutions coming out of, uh, out of um, Vatican II, the last major document signed in any case. And um, I mentioned that Archbishop Lefebvre uh, said that um, uh, the document on religious liberty was implicitly heretical. That's what Archbishop Lefebvre told me. Mm. Um, I was inclined to think it was more explicitly heretical because I thought it met the definition of heresy as given in the Code of Canon Law. Uh, we have Canon 1323 and Canon 1325 in uh, the old Code of Canon Law. And... Um, it actually tells you what heresy is. But uh, being a seminarian, uh, or, or actually newly ordained at that in that year, I certainly wasn't going to um, <clears throat> disagree with Monsignor Lefebvre. I had too great a respect for him. So I took very seriously what he said, and I took it to heart, and I really tried to uh, understand um, you know, his meaning and what he said there. Um, so, you know, whether there is explicit heresy in the documents of Vatican II is a good question. There are those who insist that there is, there are those who insist that there isn't. Um, as far as this matter of uh, Lumen Gentium is mm -hmm. referring to, um, the church in the modern world, and referring to the Jews and the Muslims, and they have, uh, they're included in the plan of salvation. Well, this can be interpreted um, to mean that the Jews as Jews uh, can be saved by being Jews, and the Muslims as Muslims can be saved by virtue of what they believe and what they do as Muslims. Uh, to say that would be heretical, uh, certainly, because um, uh, no one can be saved but by our Lord Jesus Christ through him and faith in him, and hope in him, and love for him, and uh, obedience to him. Uh, this is the teaching, dogmatic teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, period. Um, could one, um, shall we say, interpret that? Uh, well, I suppose one were to say, well, you're saying that they're included in the plan of salvation. So that's heretical. And one might come back and say, well, that's... What you make of that, that's your interpretation would be heretical, but that's not what it means. That's, you, are, you are setting up an interpretation like a straw man, and you're setting it up, you're, you're assuming, uh, you're inferring from those words something that is not contained in them. They would argue that. And um, they might interpret it very differently in saying, well, you know, of course, we have <coughs> Judaism, and we have Islam, and no, we're not saying that one is saved through Islam and one is saved through Judaism. Um, we're not saying that anyone can be saved by Mohammed. We're not saying anybody can be saved by Abraham. 
There's only one true Savior. We know that. But we're just saying that God in his providence has allowed for this. And in the end, what he does, he wants by grace to bring these people to the true faith and ultimately save them. Um, so, you know, they would, they would argue a way to say it's not explicit heresy. Uh, you're just taking something implicit and you're inferring from it, but it's really, it's, it's not explicit. Mm -hmm. um, you see that happen time and time again, Tom, when the conservative Novus Ordo, New Order Catholics, following the, the Novus Ordo, take something that, that Francis says and they spin it in such a way that it doesn't mean what it appears to mean. Yeah. They say, well, oh no, he didn't mean that. For example, when he came out at Abu Dhabi and said that God wills this multiplicity of religions, right? Now, on the surface of it, it, it would be heretical, you know, prima uh, facie. But, of course, we say, no, 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 no. God has a designed will and a resigned will. And when it says that God wills our religions, it simply means he allows them. He tolerates them. He doesn't actually positively will them as something good, but he tolerates them as an evil <clears throat> for the sake of some greater good. So they spin it that way. So they, time and time again, we find the Novus Ordo making excuses, trying to take everything Francis says and somehow reconcile it or somehow make it compatible with the Catholic faith. <clears throat> so again, um, you know, there are those who look at the uh, writings of Vatican II and they say, well, you know, this could be understood, this can be understood in an Orthodox, a true Catholic sense. It can be understood that way. And if it can be understood that way, then you cannot say that it is explicitly heretical, certainly. You might say it could be interpreted in a heretical way and maybe lends itself to heretical meaning, but you can't say it's actually explicitly heretical if it could be interpreted in a Catholic sense. And that's what many, many people do. Now, what this uh, gentleman says here, I assume it's a gentleman, that <laughs> says that... Uh, you know, uh, we all worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, um, and so on. Um, is that explicitly heretical? No. I mean, one could again argue, meaning, well, you know, there's only one true God. So if we worship God, it can only be, it has to be the one God there is. I mean, this is the, the sense of what they're saying here. Um, you can't, you know, are you implying that the Muslims have their own God and the Jews have their own God and we have our, our own God uh, revealed by Jesus and there's the God revealed by Mohammed and there's the God revealed by Abraham, uh, revealed to Abraham. Is that what you're saying? Of course, the answer is obviously not, you know. We know there is only one true God. There are false gods, so. But um, I'm sure if you were to accuse them of something irradical, they'd find some way to spin that, to interpret that, so that it is not an explicitly contrary to the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Problem is with what Francis says, you have to practically do violence to the text um, to, um, you know, claim, well, he, he, you could even say, well, he misspoke. He didn't mean it that way, right? Or... Mm -hmm. You know, because of your ill will toward him, you're gratuitously twisting his words to make them say something that is they don't they are not intended to mean. Now, as often as Francis comes out with something like that, and I know we're talking about Vatican II now, but 
<clears throat> I use trance as an example of what's going on today, along the same lines. As often as uh, Francis comes out and says something, he, he lets others answer for him and put the Catholic, try to reconcile it with the Catholic faith. When, you know, he talks to, he talks to what's his friend, Scarf, Scarfese, whatever the name of the uh, atheist journalist friend he has. Uh, when, when he, in former times, would come out and quote Francis in one of their talks, their interviews, and it was something outrageously, you know, scandalous that Francis said, Francis would sit back and let others come forward and respond for him. And uh, again, spin his words so that they could be reconciled with the faith, more or less. Just so, you know, uh, to kind of blunt the, the accusation that this is manifest heresy. This is explicit heresy. But it gets to the point where you realize when this happens repeatedly, it is not being done in good faith. When there is repeatedly saying things that are outrageous, scandalous, and offensive to the faith, you realize it's not an accident. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. He really does have a hatred for doctrine and dogma. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just basically just summing up. Um, this gentleman makes a good point here. At what point do you just say, "Well, look, this is a radical. It's just a radical," mm. and you're just trying to uh, use semantics and and uh, verbal head gymnastics to try to avoid the obvious. Um, and yes, it does come to that point where you actually do say, okay, uh, this is what he said, and this is what he does. Um, these things make him suspect of heresy, and he has never personally himself done anything to correct it. Quite the contrary. He keeps repeating it. No matter what anybody else says, on his behalf, he personally, who said these words, and is suspect of heresy for them, has never corrected them and reconciled them with the Catholic faith. Uh, and therefore, there are consequences to that, and that is after a certain period of time, even according to canon law, you know, suspicion of heresy becomes just heresy, mm -hmm. a fact of heresy. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, this... Uh seems to lead nicely into our last topic that we wanted to uh, discuss tonight. So we just spent the last uh, few minutes of the show on this. Um, I guess it came out uh, today, I guess, the uh, the text of Francis's uh, consecration uh, of Russia to the Immaculate Heart. Um, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of analysis uh, on it already. I know you read through some of it, Father, I'd like to uh, to get your, your feedback on that. Apparently, nowhere in the text does he actually mention Our Lady of Fatima. Um, there seem to be some of his uh, pet leftist liberal causes mm -hmm. in there. Um, he doesn't, he, uh, I guess, does explicitly mention Russia, but it's in unison with Ukraine and all of humanity or mm -hmm. something to that effect. But, Father, what uh, what was your take on, on reading through some of this text of the Consecration? Mm -hmm. Well, I have the text here that was published, actually, it came out of the Vatican, Right, the Catholic News Agency uh, has made it available. Um, that under the uh, CNA staff, Catholic News Agency staff, uh, have an article: Vatican releases text for March twenty fifth consecration prayer for Ukraine, Russia, and uh, this is 
Dateline, Washington, D.C. Newsroom, March 22nd, 2022, 10.41 a.m. Very, very precise here. And um, it starts out saying, The Vatican has sent bishops around the world. The text of the prayer that Pope Francis will lead on March 25th, that's coming this coming Friday, for the consecration of Ukraine and Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Here is the full text of the prayer obtained by the Catholic News Agency. <clears throat> uh, it seems long, but it, it actually isn't, especially in light of the prayer that Pope Pius Twelfth prayed over Vatican radio, radio in October of 1942. And yet it seems to me that this, in a sense, well, it's, it seems to me that whoever wrote this, whether it, whether it be Francis himself or others um, composing this for him, uh, probably read the prayer of Pope Pius XII in 1942, which I, I have the text of it here, too, and I think it would be worth looking at that and kind of comparing the two. So uh, you mentioned the last few minutes, but I think it's worth actually taking a little closer in-depth look here. Maybe, maybe if I read through it, and point out, okay, this is this, this refers to this, and this refers to that. And I'm not just making it up myself, it's because Francis himself has made such an issue of these things that it's not gratuitous that I say, oh, here he's referring to this, and here he's referring to that. But when you first read this, it sounds very pious, exactly as you'd expect. You'd expect this to sound very pious. <clears throat> because it is supposed to be for pious Catholic ears. Yeah. Now, these are the people who are interested in this. So it will be addressed uh, to them, or through them, for their hearing. So don't be surprised if it sounds uncharacteristically pious. Okay? But he says, O Mary, Mother of God and our Mother, in this time of trial we turn to you. As our Mother, you love us and know us. No concern of our hearts is hidden from you. Mother of mercy, how often we have experienced your watchful care and your peaceful presence. You never cease to guide us to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Now this is in English. I don't know what language you will use. I imagine Italian, I, I presume, but I don't know that. <clears throat> but this is translation. Yet we have strayed from that path of peace. We have forgotten the lesson learned from the tragedies of the last century the sacrifice of the millions who fell into two, in two world wars. We have disregarded the commitments we have made as a community of nations. I don't know what commitments he's referring to here. Okay? <clears throat> what commitments the community of nations have made to the Blessed Mother. Uh, so I'm a little puzzled by that statement. He continues, We have betrayed people's dreams of peace and the hopes of the young. <clears throat> we grew sick with greed. We thought only of our own nations and their interests. Now, of course, greed is a major focus of Francis, especially in denouncing capitalism. Right. And he has denounced nationalism too. This idea of the national boundaries, the, the nation, and looking for the good of the nation, the whole idea of, like, make America great again, or America first, or the whole idea... <clears throat> of having allegiance to one's own nation first is anathema to him. He's made that very clear. <clears throat> so, you know, it's not surprising that he says this. 
Addressing uh, Mary, we, we, he says, we thought only of our own nations and their interests. We grew indifferent and caught up in our selfish needs and concerns. We choose to ignore God, to be satisfied with our illusions, to grow arrogant and aggressive, to suppress innocent lives, and to stockpile weapons. And of course, he's made it very clear that uh, disarmament is a big program of his as well, as you know. We stop being our neighbor's keepers and stewards of our common home. Laudato si. You know, the idea that we are here meant to be the stewards of the earth. Um, but in an environmentalist, ecological sense. Okay. We have ravaged the garden of the earth with war. And by our sins, we have broken the heart of our heavenly father, who desires us to be brothers and sisters. We grew indifferent to everyone and everything except ourselves. Now with shame we cry out, forgive us, O Lord. And this is supposed to be part of a penitential service. So here he's introducing this idea of seeking forgiveness. But what we're seeking forgiveness for <clears throat> is actually what we've done here on earth. Um, what we've done to each other, uh, what we've done to the world, um, that's the focus. I mean, this is our great sin. Uh, if you read Our Lady's words at Fatima, especially the apparition in July of 1917, you see where the focus was there. Our Lady's focus was on sin, blasphemy, sacrilege, attacks on God, attack on her Immaculate Heart. That's not where this focus is here. The focus is here is how we're treating each other and how we're treating the earth. Um, Holy Mother, he says, amid the misery of our sinfulness, amid our struggles and weaknesses, amid the mystery of iniquity that is evil and war, you remind us that God never abandons us, but continues to look upon us with love, ever ready to forgive us and raise us up to new life. Okay? Does he mean here the everlasting life which our Lord promised, uh, which he you know, open the gates of heaven to on, on, on the cross? Or does he simply refer to uh, raising us up to new life in this world? It's because that's the only life he really talks about. Again, this is, this is the issue here. This is where his focus is. He has given you to us and made your immaculate heart a refuge for the church and for all humanity. But God's gracious will, by God's gracious will, you are ever with us, even in the most troubled times, the most troubled moments of our history, you are there to guide us with tender love. We now turn to you and knock at the door of your heart. We are your beloved children. In every age, you make yourself known to us, calling us to conversion. At this dark hour, help us and grant us your comfort. Say to us once more, am I not here, I who am your mother? You are able to untie the knots of our hearts and of our times. This is another favorite theme of Francis, uh, Mary, untire of knots. It's a devotion that's singled out for him. So first to that here, you are able to untie the knots of our hearts and of our times. In you we place our trust. We are confident that especially in moments of trial, you will not be deaf to our supplication and will come to our aid. <clears throat> now you notice as I'm reading this, and we're about two-thirds of the way through here, you notice there is much that any Catholic would say, and any Catholic would agree with, 
And it, again, you know, it's much of it is traditional Catholic piety with regard to Our Lady. The problem is um, as much what is not said as what is said. Yeah. Because the sins that he's referring to here are sins against the earth and against each other. And so we've been bad children, you know, messing up the house and being mean to each other. Um, but, he, she, but he continues here. This is kind of curious, too. He says, that is what you did at Cana in Galilee. When you interceded with Jesus, and he worked the first of his signs, to preserve the joy of the wedding feast, you said to him, they have no wine. To preserve the joy of the wedding feast. Now, you think about that, Tom, you realize it's not a question here of our Lord working his first miracle and beginning the road to Calvary to die for us by manifesting as the word, the epiphany, right? This is the third of the great epiphanies, you know, after the baptism of our Lord and the coming of the three kings to the manger. This is the third epiphany manifesting his glory, as the gospel says, and his disciples believed in him. The reason why the Blessed Mother asked Jesus to work this miracle was to preserve the joy of the wedding feast. Now, that's a purely worldly motive. And everything in here we're talking about is a purely worldly motive. Uh, and I, I think this, his idea is a re reference even to what Our Lady did of Cana, at Cana, what she asked, she wanted her son to make some wine for the people because... It would sure put a damper on the on the wedding feast. They ran out of wine. That would be a bummer, right? People probably go home and mutter about that for what, weeks because they ran out of wine. It's all very naturalistic. So you said to him, they have no wine. Now, O oh mother, repeat those words and that prayer. For in our own day, we have run out of the wine of hope. Joy has fled. So bring joy back to us, you know. Uh, fraternity has faded. That's the expression that's used. Fraternity has faded. <clears throat> we hear Francis use that word fraternity. Does it have a Catholic sense to it? It certainly does. But again, we've seen Francis use it multi multiple times. And it's pretty clear the fraternity that he's talking about is the fraternity that the Freemasons refer to. Uh, the fraternity of the French Revolution. Um... It's not a supernatural bond of charity, but rather a, a worldly fraternity. Uh, we have forgotten our humanity and squandered the gift of peace. We opened our hearts to violence and destructiveness. How greatly we need your maternal help. Therefore, O Mother, hear our prayer. Star of the sea, do not let us be shipwrecked in the tempest of war. A lot of imagery here that is rather traditional, traditional writings, but it seems kind of cobbled together. Um, so, um, he says, Ark of the New Covenant inspire projects and paths of reconciliation. Um, actually, I think I might have jumped ahead a little bit because I think something... No, that, that's it, huh? That's the next? Okay. Yeah. You're following along. Good. <laughs> Queen of Heaven, I mean, inspire projects and paths of reconciliation. Again, you know, we're talking about, there are a lot of projects going on these days that claim to be for the good of mankind, but we know that they have an ulterior motive. 
Queen of Heaven, restore God's peace to the world. Eliminate hatred and the thirst for revenge and teach us forgiveness. Free us from war. Protect our world from the menace of nuclear weapons. Okay, so again, I mean, we'd all like the Blessed Mother to protect our world from the menace of nuclear weapons, but unfortunately there's a political agenda behind much of what is said, and we, we see that in what Francis says. Queen of the Rosary, make us realize our need to pray and to love. Queen of the human family, show people the path of fraternity. Queen of peace, obtain peace for our world. O Mother, may your sorrowful pleas stir our hardened hearts. May the tears you shed for us make this valley parched by our hatred blossom anew amid the thunder of weapons. May your prayer turn our thoughts to peace. May your maternal touch soothe those who suffer and flee from the rain of bombs. <clears throat> Again, talks about the thunder of weapons and the rain of bombs. So it's kind of a little conceit there in the sense, in the, in the poetic sense of the word, right? May your motherly embrace comfort those forced to leave their homes and their native lands. Favorite theme of Francis, immigration, immigration, immigration. Open your, open your borders, open your gates, open your homes, receive the immigrants. I mean, he, he's, he's hitting on all these points as he goes along here. May your sorrowful heart move us to compassion and inspire us to open our doors and to care for our brothers and sisters who are injured and cast aside. And he continues here, there's something where it talks about more on Europe, and this is where he turns his attention to Russia and Ukraine. Holy Mother of God, as you stood beneath the cross, Jesus, seeing the disciple at your side, said, Behold your son. In this way, he entrusted each of us to you, to the disciple and to each of us. He said, Behold your mother. Mother Mary, we now desire to welcome you into our lives and our history. At this hour, a weary and distraught humanity stands with you beneath the cross, needing to entrust itself to you and through you to consecrate itself to Christ. The people of Ukraine and Russia, who venerate you with great love, now turn to you, even as your heart beats with compassion for them and for all those peoples decimated by war, hunger, injustice, and poverty. Therefore, Mother of God and our Mother, to your Immaculate Heart we solemnly entrust and consecrate ourselves, the Church and all humanity, especially Russia and Ukraine. Accept this act that we carry out with confidence and love. Grant that war may end and peace spread throughout the world. The fiat that arose from your heart opened the doors of history to the Prince of Peace. We trust that through your heart, peace will dawn once more. To you we consecrate the future of the whole human family, the needs and expectations of every people, the anxieties and hopes of the world. Through your intercession, may God's mercy be poured out on the earth and the gentle rhythm of peace return to mark our days. Our Lady of the Fiat, on whom the Holy Spirit descended, restore among us the harmony that comes from God. May you, our living fountain of hope, water the dryness of our hearts. In your womb, Jesus took flesh. Help us to foster the growth of communion. You once trod the streets of our world. Lead us now on the paths of peace. Amen. 
So that last part would be basically, I guess, considered the actual consecration. Where he actually uh, dedicates or consecrates Russia, Ukraine, uh, humanity, the church uh, to to Christ, says, um, to, to Mary and to Christ. That's what the actual text says. And I think it's, it's interesting to look at this in light of the 1942 consecration of Pope Pius XII. And I know we don't have an awful lot of time left here, but I think okay. it's worth looking yeah. at. You know, um, you, you ask, well, you know, what, what, is, what is different about this? You notice there's no mention in these, in these prayers of Fatima, Our Lady's appearance of Fatima, um, there is no mention of the immorality which Our Lady denounced at Fatima and after, uh, even to Jacinta when she, uh, Jacinta was hospitalized, about the, the immorality of immodesty, impurity, more sins go to hell because of sins of impurity than for any other reason. And there's, there's none of that here. It's simply a matter of, can't we all get along? Please make us all get along here. This is the what we need for peace here. And um, the idea that we must be at peace with each other, um, it's a nice idea. I mean, it's a good idea. We'd like that. But it can be understood in the pre-Masonic way, a very naturalistic way. But the idea that the peace we have with each other must follow necessarily from the peace of the human conscience with God in heaven, that we must be faithful to God, and only then can we be at peace, that all war came into the world because of sin, not the other way around. But he's got it backwards. You know, the idea that, gee, we're at war, please make us be faithful by not being at war. But rather than say, oh Lord, please reconcile us as individual persons to thy, the uh, Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, make us faithful to you. And we know that if we are faithful, to Almighty God, and we are uh, holding as our model the Immaculate Heart of Mary, then necessarily the world will be at peace. But that is the condition of there being peace in the world. That's not the message that comes across in this prayer. I think it is the message that comes across in the prayer of Pope Pius XII, though. Here's what Pope Pius XII said in October of 1942. <clears throat> this is the official version of Pope Pius XII's prayer of consecrating the world, and obliquely Russia to the Immaculate Heart. It was broadcast out the world, as I say, and um, with, united with the bishops of Portugal on the 25th anniversary of Our Lady's appearance. Queen of the Most Holy Rosary, refuge of the human race, victorious in all God's battles, we humbly prostrate ourselves before thy throne, confident that we shall receive mercy, grace, and bountiful assistance and protection in the present calamity, not through our own inadequate merits, but solely through the great goodness of thy maternal heart. To thee, to thy immaculate heart, in this humanity's tragic hour, we consign and consecrate ourselves in union, not only with the mystical body of thy Son, Holy Mother Church, now in such suffering and agony in so many places, and sorely tried in so many ways, but also with the entire world, torn by fierce strife, consumed in a fire of hate, victim of its own wickedness. 
May the sight of the widespread material and moral destruction of the sorrows and anguish of countless fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and innocent children, of the great number of lives cut off in the flower of youth, of the bodies mangled in horrible slaughter, and of the tortured and agonized souls in danger of being lost eternally, move thee to compassion. See, right away, you, you discover something that has no place in Francis's consecration. That is, <clears throat> well, he says, you know, we're uniting ourselves with the church throughout the world, not just with all mankind. But he also talks about eternal damnation. He says, we're conscious of all this destruction. But he says, not just of the destruction of the body, but the tortured and agonized souls in danger of being lost eternally. I don't recall any mention of that. Mother of mercy, obtain peace for us from God, and above all, procure for us those graces which prepare, establish, and assure the peace. Now here Francis is getting into the Catholic teaching. I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. Here Pope Pius XII, rather, <clears throat> is getting into the Catholic teaching that this is an actual matter of grace, and for there to be peace, there has to be grace, and we have to cooperate with the grace of God. And what does that grace address? The grace that addresses our sins. It is our sinfulness that causes war, not our war that causes our sinfulness. <laughs> Queen of Peace, pray for us and give to the world now at war the peace for which all peoples are longing, peace in the truth justice, and charity of Christ. Truth, justice, and charity of Christ. This is what we must all be united in. There will we find peace. That's not what Francis is saying here. We have to come to our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to find him there. And we have to find unity in his truth and his justice and his charity. He is the king of peace. Give peace to the warring nations and to the souls of men, that in the tranquility of order the kingdom of God may prevail. Again, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt it again, but notice the entire thrust of this consecration done by Pius XII has to do with establishing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ on earth. And... Um, Francis does not convey that understanding at all, that first we have to be uh, loyal, faithful to Christ, that is a matter of faith, hope, and charity directed toward God, um, our Creator, and through Jesus Christ, our Father, uh, that alone peace can come. Um, extend thy protection to the infidels and to all those still in the shadow of death. Give them peace and grant that on them too may shine the sun of truth, that they may unite with us in proclaiming before the one and only Savior of the world, glory to God in the highest, and peace to men of goodwill. What is he saying here? He's calling for the conversions of those who don't have the faith in Christ. Again, Francis is not talking about that. Pius XII is very clear. Please convert those who are sitting in the shadow of death, bring them to the Son of Truth, who is Jesus Christ, your Son, that they may sing with us, a praise, him appraised to our Savior. Give peace to the world. Yeah, I'm sorry, uh, St. Pius, Pius XII says, 
Give peace to the people separated by error or by discord, and especially to those who profess such singular devotion to thee, and in whose homes an honored place was ever accorded thy venerated icon, today perhaps often kept hidden to await better days and bring them back to the one fold of Christ under the one true shepherd. What is he praying for? He's praying for the conversion of schismatics. He's talking about those who are separated <clears throat> by error. He's talking about error of faith, discord, by schism. And especially to those, he's singling out for those separated from by schism who have a devotion to our Blessed Lady expressed in, an, in the icon. Very clearly, he's referring to the peoples of Russia. And an icon that is often hidden away now because of Stalinist Russia, in which they live. And they have to hide their, their faith um, <clears throat> from the communists, awaiting better days, he says. So he says, bring them back to the one fold of Christ under the one true shepherd. You see, he's praying for the conversion. Francis doesn't do that. And Pope Pius XII continues, obtain peace and complete freedom for the Holy Church of God. Stay the spreading flood of modern paganism and kindle in the faithful the love of purity, the practice of the Christian life, and an apostolic zeal, so that the servants of God may increase in merit and in number. Lastly, as the Church and the entire human race were consecrated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, so that in reposing all hope in him, he might become for them the sign and pledge of victory and salvation. So we, in like manner, consecrate ourselves forever also to thee, and to thy Immaculate Heart, our Mother and Queen, that thy love and patronage may hasten the triumph of the Kingdom of God, and that all nations, at peace with one another and with God, may proclaim thee blessed and with thee may raise their voices to resound from pole to pole in the chant of the everlasting Magnificat of glory, love, and gratitude to the heart of Jesus, where alone they can find truth and peace. Now this is the prayer of consecration of Pius XII. <clears throat> and even though one may you know, read some of the, the, the Francis's words here and say, well, there are certain pious expressions he uses, and doubtless it's true, there are things that he doesn't say. I don't see, I don't recall that he ever mentions the actual name of Jesus. He calls him Christ and uh, so on, but I don't know that he does. But why is the twelfth certainly does? And he talks about the kingdom of God that has to be accepted and respected by all mankind. That that is where we find, that, and there alone can we find peace among ourselves when we are united in one true faith and in subservience and service to Almighty God himself, as revealed to us by his own divine Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically mentions here the sacred heart of Jesus, that re reposing all hope in him. Basically, that's what he, he wants. He wants the Immaculate Heart of Mary to basically take us there, to take us to the sacred heart of Jesus and there and there alone are we going to find any hope of peace, the uh, peace of God, the peace that only God can give, right? 
So, in other words, Tom, I, I, the prayer that Francis has proposed to say here on Friday is very, very different from the prayer that Pope Pius XII made in 1942. And I would say the difference is one is supernatural and the other is very naturalistic. One is about the conversion of sinners, the, uh, well, basically what Our Lady said at Panama, right? To, uh, that we be faithful to God, that not only do we stop sinning, we make reparation for the sins of mankind. And ultimately, what we're looking for is not just life in this world of social justice, we're looking for everlasting life in heaven. Pius XII explicitly speaks of these, speaks of these things. Francis pointedly does not. That's why I would have to say that one of these prayers is, is Catholic, and one of them really is not, insofar as uh, not only what it says, but what it does not say. Mm -hmm. I think it fails, fails what Our Lady wanted at Fatima, clearly. Now, there, is, there are those for whom Francis is clearly no pope. They come to the conclusion they're convinced he cannot possibly be the victor of Christ on earth. understand very well. And uh, for them, this is not an issue. They, they place no, <clears throat> no stock in this at all. They say this is really not the case of a real Catholic Supreme Pontiff, Victor of Christ on Earth, making this consecration of Russia, as Our Lady asked. Others are not so convinced of that. Others may be convinced that he is, in fact. Still, a, a Catholic, he's, a, he's a Pope of the New Order, but they are also con they're convinced of that. We all know that. There are those who are still very convinced that he is also the Pope of the tradition of the Catholic Church. And they still have a lot of hope, hope in this, and they're looking at this with great hopefulness because they figure that the fate of the world depends on this. And everything they have to hope for, for life in this world, for themselves and for their children, their grandchildren, obviously this is weighing very heavily on them. Um, <clears throat> two possibilities that this is, takes place on, on this coming Friday, and there's, um, you know, the situation intensifies, the war intensifies between Russia and, and Ukraine. And so they lose hope because, look, this was done and it didn't uh, restore peace and order in the world. And so, you know, if this didn't do it, nothing, nothing will. We're lost. On the other hand, if it, if it does accomplish something and there's a truce, that is settled upon. I think they've already figured out what they got to do about this. Uh, and by the way, uh, uh, President Biden is altering his travel plans for this, for this consecration on Friday. Um, I think they've already figured out how they're going to handle this. They could, they could uh, arrange a truce at any moment, right? As long as it serves their purpose. And, um, or perhaps they will arrange a truce and everyone will think, well, well, not everyone, but those who pin their hopes on this will say, well, look, you see, this is exactly right, and so this is the fulfillment, and so all is well with the new order. And it must be good, must be right. And so whatever misgivings they have about the, 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 the new order um, now uh, are going to be removed, and they will become good and wholehearted novus or modernists. Uh, followers of Francis. I don't know which it's going to be. Um, 
but either way, the result is not going to be good. Insofar as it uh, dashes the hopes of people, what hopes they still have, or insofar as it quote-unquote fulfills them, that makes them think the Novus Ordo is the fulfillment of their hopes. Um, I, I see this uh, not working out very, uh, very well. Um, we, we, you and I, uh, have an obligation here. We should, uh, on this feast of the Annunciation of Our Lady, we should consecrate ourselves, renew our own consecration to our, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Each and every one of us here should renew our own personal consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. All traditional Catholics throughout the world should renew that. And some might even say, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm worried that if Francis stands up before the world and makes this consecration, that uh, our Lord will punish the world because this is being made by a man who has repeatedly blasphemed him. I mean, you think about the Amoris Laetitia that, that uh, Francis issued, that apostolic exhortation, in which he said that adultery, well, that doesn't necessarily mean you're in the state of mortal sin. And you can still receive, receive communion worthily uh, if you're living in open adultery. Remember the words of last Sunday's Gospel where St. Paul says, No adulterer, unclean fornicator has any inheritance in the, in the kingdom of Christ or of God. Let no one deceive you with vain words. These are the words of last Sunday's Gospel, the third Sunday after uh, of Lent. And uh, Francis has directly contradicted those words. And the Pachamama, worship, being worshipped right in St. Peter's Basilica itself, Pachamama, under the form of, of, of snake idols, snake idols, being worshipped, this evil uh, earth goddess, uh, murderous earth goddess, claimed the lives of thousands of children sacrificed to it. I won't say her. And then Francis comes out and says, this is a symbol of Mary, the Blessed Mother. And this is blasphemy. Saying at Abu Dhabi that uh, God wills the God wills the multiplicity of religions. The multiplicity of religions. He's there with an imam from uh, Islam, <clears throat> which says that those who claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God deserve to have their heads cut off for their for blasphemy. I mean, it is blasphemous for him to say these things. And yet he's going to stand up and he's make this, going to make this consecration. In other words, he's a man who has basically is guilty, well, at least we can't judge his soul, but outwardly he has done things that are diametrically opposed to what Our Lady has condemned, it, uh, has, has talked about at Fatima. When she at Fatima said, these things need to stop, you must not do these things, he's done them all, and he continues to do them. Yeah. And so there are those who say, this is going to be a provocation of God when he does this and uh, that we are at risk of provoking divine wrath, that he would dare, dare presume to do this without first repenting of the scandal that he's given and the example that he's, that he's uh, provided. Uh, maybe they're right. Maybe this is actually going to be the ultimate provocation. <laughs> All the more reason why I say we need to, on that day, renew our consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary.
And uh, if we see this as like not just a con the consecration, but the anti-consecration, out of the anti-consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, we need to be uh, making that personal consecration to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart on March 25th and ideally every day of our lives. So I'm sorry I've gone on uh, a bit longer than even usual, but uh, thanks for your patience. No problem, Father. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is uh, definitely the question of the day that's on a lot of people's minds. A lot of people are asking about it. A lot of people are, wor are worried about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's great to cover it. So I appreciate all of your analysis there, Father. Oh, certainly, Tom. Yep. Well, if we started with this, we probably wouldn't have gotten to anything else. So that's maybe true. it's best we didn't. Yes. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. God bless you. God bless you all. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>